Beautiful. So thank you everybody for uh, coming in today. Um, we're just going to start up right away. So we have the time. Um, if you want to introduce yourself in, in the chat, that will be great. Um, we really appreciate you coming today for the uh, ARA SIG 93 uh, webinar. Um, we have an awesome set of panelists here from uh, basically the major physical education and sport pedagogy journals. Um, let me go ahead and first introduce everyone. So I'm just going to list everyone. And uh, if you want to wave on camera so people know who you are. Uh, representing the Journal of Teaching and Physical Education, we have uh, Heather Irwin. Uh, Physical Education and Sport Pedagogy, uh, David Kirk. Uh, having two hats on, one for Quest and one for Adapted Physical Activity Quarterly Journal, uh, Justin Hagel. Um, the European Physical Education Review, Ken Green, and the International Journal of Kinesiology and Higher Education, Jamie McMullen. Um, so the plan is for the panelists to uh, basically answer some questions from a list that the SIG board created. Uh, we may not get to all of them at first. Um, after that, so let's say in about 30 minutes, you as an audience are going to have time to ask your questions. Um, you can pre pre-type them into the chat if you want, or ask them live. Um, we're going to end in about 60 minutes from now, but we're going to turn off the recording and hang out for another 15 minutes for more informal discussion. So if there's something that uh, you want to ask, but you don't want it uh, as like part of the recording, then you can do that at the very end. So let's move on uh, right away to the first part of the panel. Um, the first few editors can make some uh, more detailed responses, and obviously not all editors are expected to answer every single question since we have limited time. So I've asked the editors if they want, they can also ask uh, answer questions in the chat. Um, for the editors, um, feel free to jump in on any question you feel strongly about or want to add. Um, and then if something hasn't been covered, uh, feel free to jump in. Um, and again, if there are long silences, I'm just going to call on some of you to get the conversation started. Um, and feel, feel free also to engage with the chat. So um, the first question that we talked about, and I'll put these uh, in the chat so people can see what we've sent the editors ahead of time. Um, I wanted to ask, what are the most common mistakes authors make that lead to extensive revisions or uh, straight up rejection? So anybody wanna jump in on that? Heather Irwin, go ahead. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Um, I'll go quickly. Uh, I think the biggest mistake from, from the start is probably whether or not the, the study or the, the paper meets the mission of the journal itself. So I think it's really important to go to the actual website, read what the mission and the aims are. So that's really important. Um, and also, Probably in our particular journal, oftentimes we're looking for some type of theoretical grounding. So if that's not included, there needs to be some type of justification for that. Also, lack of detail in the introduction, background, review, uh, review of literature, and finally, like methodological flaws. So if there are um, things that we as editors or associate editors deem that just aren't maybe rigorous enough, then that typically lead to some type of rejection or revision, sorry, major revision. Awesome. Thanks, David. Go ahead. 
Um, in addition to all the things that Heather just said, and absolutely up at the very, very top of the agenda is, does the paper topic fit the journal? It is just such an elementary mistake that some people make. Um, <clears throat> but second of all is, is this news? Um, because if it's not news, then we're not going to publish it. And, and to determine whether something is news, you really need to locate your topic within the first few paragraphs of the introduction, within the literature of the field that the journal serves. So I say to people that we have six or seven core journals in physical education, pedagogy, sport pedagogy, and they need to be drawing in literature from those different places to really locate the topic. And this is what the reviewers are looking for. And they need assistance. And so a statement, something like, you know, this is the first study that's done such and such, or we're looking to fill a gap here, or we're looking to question for the first time this idea. Um, you know, that kind of originality statement really gives the, the, the reviewers a, a good steer. Now, of course, you might, they might not believe you, um, and it's your, it's your job to, 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 to convince them. But, but that would be the thing, news. <clears throat> Hey, David, how much does it matter if, let's say, I I send a publication to you or I send a paper to you that I'm citing in your specific journal? How much does that matter as a um, from your your point of view? Well, th this has been a bit of a controversial point um, over time, um, and certainly we wouldn't say to, to authors you can't get published in PESP unless you cite papers from PESP, but it does kind of make common sense. Um, that if you've chosen PESP for, for your paper, then it has got some track record of publishing on that topic. Um, it's very distracting trying to keep tabs with the chat and talk at the same time. Um, <clears throat> um, and I think it's, you know, I think a journals is, is, is not as necessarily just paper or digital text. The, the journals are communities of scholars. That's what they represent. And that's, what they, that's who they serve. And so I think it's a kind of respectful thing to acknowledge who it is you think you're speaking to. And it does give regular readers of the journal some point of orientation if they can see, oh, yeah, okay, I recognize this study and I recognize this study. Um, so we wouldn't be hard and fast, Risto, by saying you must cite. Um, but I think it, it would be a smart thing to make sure that you've covered appropriate papers that have appeared in that journal and sister journals. Any other uh, add-ons to that? What what are kind of the common mistakes? Justin, Jamie, Ken, Ken, go ahead. I wasn't going to uh, talk about the common mistakes. Actually, I was going to jump back to the the issue raised by my predecessors about the um, about the relevance of a paper to a journal. And just give you an example of an unsuitable submission to the European Physical Education Review. And I'll read the title out, Risto, if you'll bear with me give you a flavour of this kind of problem. The title of this paper was Preliminary Outcome of the Effect of Therapy on Stress, Urinary Incontinence, Pelvic Floor Strength and Sexual Satisfaction in Women with Vaginal Relaxation Syndrome, a randomised control trial. That came into us a matter of weeks ago, the European Physical Education Review, a clear example of what Heather was talking about, somebody simply not reading the, uh, the guidelines to authors and the aims and objectives. 
Just to jump in and add to that, uh, that's probably the biggest problem with Quest is that we get a ton of submissions that are outside of the scope of the journal. Um, people have a misunderstanding of Quest that's pretty substantial that we only publish conceptual papers. And there was a time that that was true, but in the last five years, we've begun to take um, empirical work that focuses in kinesiology in higher education. But the paper that Ken just read sounds like it might have been rejected here also. So uh, it might be making the rounds. Um, so for the other journal, for APAC, the Adapted Physical Activity Quarterly Journal, which there aren't um, a large representation of APA folk in here, but one of the um, one of the stresses that we're making right now is to stop publishing the same stuff over and over again. And so this is a Something I see in a lot of uh, our journals is we seem to publish the same exact thing over and over again. For me, this is quite frustrating. Um, and so with APAC, we're looking not just on does it fit the journal, but does it continue and add to the literature? So I suppose this goes to what David said, is this news? But um, we're looking for things that are pushing the envelope for understanding, um, understanding disability and physical activity um, within APAC. So just some additional thoughts, maybe just reinforcing what David and Ken had said. And I think I would add to, um, from the standpoint of the International Journal of Kinesiology and Higher Education, I feel like I'm like the little sister maybe on the block here um, in the conversation, because we are a newer journal. Um, and we do cater towards introductory research, small scale research, early career researchers, and so um, as far as thinking about things with, you know, extensive revisions or um, rejections after revision, I think the biggest mistake that I see um, is people not actually addressing reviewers' comments um, after a first um, version. And I think a lot of that, um, I, I'm happy to see a lot of grad students and early career folks on here. Um, depending on the mentorship that you get. Um, I think some people are better at this than others as far as um, doing journal revisions. So those of you that mentor graduate students, I really hope that you are teaching them about the review process and, um, and the revision process, because I think that that's really important. Um, and so that's the biggest piece that I see um, from our standpoint is after, especially after something has gone out for review, um, that folks don't necessarily take the feedback and review revise it appropriately, um, which sometimes leads to um, further major revisions or um, a rejection um, after the first review. Maybe we can jump in and ask this follow-up question there, Jamie. Um, what is the ideal way that you would like to see reviewer comments addressed by, so let's say you get a major revisions, what do you want to see in that uh, second round? Yeah, I think, again, this is probably differs for everybody a little bit based off of like personal preference. But I mean, I think it's appropriate for, um, I mean, I think it's necessary that authors, <clears throat> excuse me, address each of the comments that were provided to them um, in a day and age where, and I'm sure all the other editors can um, empathize with me, that finding reviewers is a challenge in and of itself. Um, people are increasingly busy and I, a lot of people, I mean, I'm on editorial boards that are represented within this panel, in addition to being editor of IJKHE. Um, and a lot of us do, you know, are involved in multiple editorial boards. And so um, I think taking the time to address the comments and not just dismiss them and 
Um, similar to what Heather was saying earlier about justifying, like if there's something a reviewer wants that you're not going to provide for whatever reason, providing a justification of why you are doing that or not, and understanding that that you know may or may not um, appease the reviewers. And so I think that that's the biggest piece is not dismissing any of the feedback, whether you agree with it or not, and finding a way in a respectful manner to address it. Um, I think that's key. And then also including those responses to reviewers with your resubmission is another mistake that I see frequently and have to then unsubmit manuscripts and seek out that feedback or the responses to reviewers before I'll send it out to review. Because as someone who has done a lot of reviewing for a lot of different journals, when you do not have those responses, um, author responses, it's really challenging as a reviewer to, to know what's actually been done to improve the manuscript. Thanks, Jamie. Heather? I'm sorry. So Jamie kind of uh, jumped in with what I was going to add. I really think um, it would be important to have some type of a table, a specific table, which lists every single suggested um, change or just question from any of the reviewers and then how and where in the paper that the author address that. So because people do so many reviews and it comes back two months later or four, five months later, uh, it's hard for me as a reviewer to remember what I suggested. And so I, it is valuable to me to say, hey, it wasn't a waste of my time to review that paper. Here's how the person, how the authors actually looked at my feedback and, and either made changes or justified why they you know why they didn't make any in that instance but i do think like a nice table is a great way for reviewers a second or third time to be able to follow and see how it was changed great thank you um so what constitutes a desk reject i know some of you talked about not fitting the journal's aims and scope but where do you um where do you decide or how do you decide that something doesn't even go out for review? Um, if I could, <clears throat> um, so the way we work at PESP is that I look at everything that comes in first. Um, <clears throat> so I'm the, I'm the primary filter. Um, and we do reject a fair amount of stuff prior to review. It might not just be about fit. Um, a common problem is that um, the authors haven't gone to the website to look at instructions for authors. And so we get formatting that is not standard and what we require. Um, we require a structured abstract um, with all of our papers. If it's not there, you, it gets pinged back to you. Um, referencing, you must follow the referencing that we require. on. The, so these would be other reasons why you would get a desk reject. Great. Others? Ken? So, so yeah, can I just say, I mean, I'd agree with everything David just said. We, we, we wouldn't automatically reject if it's not in our house style. However, um, it would go automatically back to the authors if it was in a completely inappropriate style. Let's say it's Vancouver. It's, it's, um, it's a footnote style. Reducing the fact that the authors clearly haven't um, read the, the journal instructions. So we wouldn't automatically... But we, we it, it's a it's a really obvious oversight, not as David says, to to read the instructions to authors and to match the paper to the journal. 
not least because it, it might indicate the paper has been like the one that Jane referred to earlier, has been elsewhere and been rejected elsewhere. Now, would you, uh, so let's say you you would still send out a review even though it's not formatted correctly for, or if cited? It's whatever, yeah, whatever our requirements are, aerial size 12. If it's around about that, it would still go out. We wouldn't automatically. But if, if it's so far away, it's, for example, in Vancouver style, then it would automatically go back. It's a matter of degree. And as a reviewer, do you want the reviewer to then say this is formatted incorrectly or change the formatting or? No, wouldn't expect them to make any changes whatsoever. I mean, they might make that observation. Um, I don't think as yet we've had anybody make that observation other than when it is clearly out of kilter and it's clearly clearly um, formatted or clearly presented in a completely inappropriate referencing style, like, as I say, the Vancouver style, footnote style. Hans, uh, uh, sorry, um, Bristol, good reading, Hans. Bristol, we, we have another mechanism that the other journals might also have, which is to unsubmit a manuscript. It's a tortuous word in English. I, I've never come across it before until they, they invented it for the journal to unsubmit something. Um, but, but basically, that's not a reject then. It's just sending the, <clears throat> the paper back saying, if you fix this small thing, right, there's no structured abstract. So, you know, pop that back into the paper and then we'll, it'll just come back into a consideration for, for review. Justin, Jamie, any any other ways that you would desk reject? I feel like Justin has some things to say about this, but also um, from, from our standpoint, I think again, going back to the fact that IJKHE encourages early career and graduate student submissions, um, I feel like and now I'm going to get a flood of submissions, so I'm afraid to say this out loud, but I feel like I'm a little bit more lenient um, on certain things. And I do use the, yes, it's uh, a very strange word and gets caught on spell check every time, but the unsubmit feature um, frequently to have folks address issues before sending it out for review. Um, I think for me, our journal has a relatively small word count. Um, which can be challenging for some, 5,500 words, um, all inclusive. And so mainly the papers that I desk reject are manuscripts that are like 8,000, 9,000 words. And they haven't in the cover letter, like said, we understand that our manuscripts, uh, you know, highly exceeds the word count or whatever. And, you know, I will try to work with authors if, if that's the case and the journal and the article fits the journal um, mission and vision really well. Um, so I think that that's one piece I've also seen, and I'm sure others have as well. Um, when it comes to me, the cover letter will be addressed to a different journal or a different editor, and they haven't changed the cover letter. Um, those are things that I will often um, remark on, um, maybe won't necessarily be an automatic desk reject, but those are little small details that I think are really important um, to keep in mind. Um, and I say that laughing as when I was a graduate student, I did that and wrote the wrong journal name in a cover letter. So I speak from experience as well. Um, but little pieces like that, I think are really important um, from the standpoint and, and, and IJKG has a broad um, readership you know, from all of interdisciplinary research across kinesiology. So the scope is quite wide for our journal. Um, so I find myself more rejecting things based off of 
overall quality of the paper, length of the manuscript, um, other kind of blatant errors, things like that. Um, so. Well, <clears throat> since Jamie, since Jamie called me out, I'll, I'll say something here. And I think this comes from our last uh, joint Nakahee publication meeting about Quest. Um, but I think we, we do desk reject a lot of papers from Quest. We also have begun starting to desk reject a lot of papers through APAC. A lot of those desk rejections are scope related or methodological quality related. Um, and I, I think the, re the thing I do want to share, which hasn't been said yet, is the reason why we want to desk reject a lot of papers. And it all kind of goes around this system that these peer review publications have, which is the more papers we put into review, the more pressing we're going to, or the more we're pressing our associate editors, and then those associate editors are then pressed more to find more reviewers. Um, and then all of us are taxed more to review more papers, and a lot of those papers may or may not um, get accepted into the journal anyway. So if there are papers that are not borderline papers, but surely are not of the methodological rigor that the journal wants, then it's the best thing to get desk rejected so that we're not stressing the peer review system further. Um, I get desk rejected pretty regularly, um, and I'm, I'm pretty happy about getting desk rejected. Usually it means I'm trying to push a journal in a direction that they're not comfortable with. I'm cool with that. Or if they think it doesn't fit whatever their epistemological and ontological beliefs are, and I think that happens often, where you try to push something that isn't within the scope of what the editors of a journal believe is, is uh, valuable. That's cool. There's a lot of reasons people get rejected, but for me, desk rejection is really important because it doesn't stress the system as much as putting every single paper that you receive into some sort of peer review. Great. So Chad, uh, Chad put a question in the chat. Has there been any conversation across the the journals, across you as editors, to like have the same formatting? Like what's the reason why different journals have different citation systems, heading systems? Uh, has there any, ever been a conversation about going with one specific style? So the people who are publishing in physical education, sport pedagogy, adapted physical activity, physical education can kind of use the same system going across? Ken, oh, sorry, Ken had addressed that in the chat. I was just going to say, Ken, you might want to jump in there. Yeah, 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 thanks. I was just saying, Mr. That publishers tend to have their own preferred house styles. I mean, our house style has changed on at least two occasions over the years as Sage have moved from one kind of house style to another. But um, I, I guess you might view it as a, as a test of the would-be uh, author's commitment to a journal that they are preferred, pre prepared to make the adjustments and do make the adjustments necessary to submit to a different journal carefully. But, um, yeah, it, it's discipline-based historically, isn't it? And so uh, discipline and publishers are going to constrain what we can do. Others might take a different view. Yeah. Um. So I guess artificial intelligence can do that for us in a uh, in a few years. So let me transition to asking you about that. Um, so ChatGPT has been uh, discussed a lot in different academic circles and high school teaching and middle school teaching and, and industry. Um, so we're wondering there there are journals like Nature who has who have put out an editorial about what their specific policy is in using artificial intelligence or these uh, large language models 
um, and restricting them or giving some parameters. So I'm wondering, has your uh, journal had a conversation about this? Do you have a policy against using artificial intelligence for any part, some part, conversation, creation, or anything? Or how, how do you navigate that? So just to say something so you don't have dead silence here, Risto, um, I've had conversations with both Rutledge and Human Kinetics about uh, using artificial intelligence and what the policies are going to be. My understanding is that no decisions have been made from either of those publishing companies about what we're going to do moving forward, but they are aware of it. Um, I received that nature paper from one of the publishers and then I sent it to the other one. I don't know which stream it was. Um, you know, things do get messy sometimes with the two different uh, publishers, but um, I do know those conversations are ongoing currently. Thanks. Heather, do you unmute? Were you ready to talk? We, we are basically in the same boat. So Kevin Richards, who's also is incoming editor and I have discussed this and we're starting to talk with one of our editorial uh, managers about it. So, but we don't have anything at the moment, but, but it is on our radar. Others, Jamie, Ken, David? No, just the same for us, Fristo. <clears throat> This, this is Hans. Um, it, it, it seems to me that the uh, journals, or the, the the people in charge of journals, need to really get on their horse and get policies implemented. Because if there ever was a mechanism that will allow for cheating, basically um, in, in some shape or form, um, that this is just opening Pandora's box, um, and the, the field would be would be benefiting from having clear policies on what it does and does not allow in terms of artificial intelligence and how reviewers can be supported in tracking down what could have been essentially fabricated so thanks hans um so seeing that we don't have a lot of policies there yet let's uh move on because we still have a little bit of time here on these questions that we've pre-prepared um, what do you want to see in a good journal review? So a person who's starting to review or has reviewed a little bit, what do you what do you want them to focus on? How long is the is a good journal review and kind of just overall guidance for for reviewers? Well, one of the things that <clears throat> we insist on is that reviews are constructive. Um in my <clears throat> younger days, uh, having received some very rude and dismissive reviews, um, probably justifiably, but, but not for being rude, um, and writing back to the editors to, to say, really, this is not acceptable. That was a good lesson for me to, to, to be in the receiving end of those. So we, we want um, them to be constructive. They should be um, uh, frank, but also um, trying to help the authors to do the best they can with the the paper. Um, because of the system we got to PESP, we, we actually don't take that much material into review that we don't think is publishable, um, even though it might not be ready at that particular point in time. So um, <clears throat> apart from the desk reject, which is a decision I make, but it's not made on the basis usually 
of content of the job of the of the article, I would then go to one of my associate editors uh, to ask their specialist opinions on whether or not we should take the paper into review. Often they write back to say to me, no, we shouldn't, we should reject. Um, so this is, I think this came up earlier about the burden of work on, on volunteer reviewers. And this is how we try to handle that. And because of that, I think we, we, when we do ask people to review, um, for the most part, we get incredibly useful reviews in the main. I read all of them um, that come in. Um, so yeah, constructive, positive, helpful, but also honest and frank with authors. Others, what are you what are you looking for in a in a in a great review, Jamie? Um, yeah, I can jump in. I think, um, as I mentioned um, a few times now, um, we do take um, graduate student submissions and things, and so. I always really, especially as a newer journal for with IJKHE, where some folks that I'm asking to review have maybe not had much exposure to our journal, um, to kind of get people, if you do accept a review from a journal, for you to go to the aims and scope page and, and those kinds of things as well, to which I know again is a big ask for volunteer reviewers, but to know a little bit about the journal that they're reviewing for um, and to understand the type of submission that they're reviewing. So IJKHE also accepts best practice um, manuscripts. And so sometimes they are not, um, it's not a research paper that you're reviewing. And so a lot of times I'll have reviewers send back things about like, this isn't research or they don't have clear methods. And it's like, well, literally in the, the letter that you got asked to say, it says that this is a best practice manuscript. So understanding kind of the different types of manuscripts that are being submitted to the journal. And we are making changes to the automatic system to try to include more information um, about the type of manuscript that people are being asked to review um, so that they understand those pieces. Um, but I think, yes, constructive is important, um, particularly as a journal who gets a lot of submissions from early career folks and graduate students. Um, as a you know, graduate student who my first journal review, and Hans might remember, I was about to quit my PhD after I got my first journal review because it was terrible. And, um, you know, I didn't think I was was cut out for this profession um, based off of the uh, frank, but also rude comments um, that were included in the, my first journal review that I ever received as, a, as an author. So I think being constructive Another thing that I see a lot is like, please do not include your decision in your review. Um, a lot of uh, reviewers will say, you know, this is a major revision or minor revision, like in their review. Um, and given the fact that different reviewers have different um, qualifications for those things, I think it's important to just use the system to make your decision and then leave your decision actually out of the written review itself. Um, so I think for me, the biggest thing is being constructive, um, clear and concise, and, um, and and understanding the type of manuscript that you're reviewing. Do any of you take uh, journal reviews that are very, very negative and just never send it out to the um, to the author if you feel like it's like egregiously like bad? Heather? I can I can speak to that. We've had a few of these instances, and um, typically, like the associate editor will alert us to it. But I tr always try to read through as well. Oftentimes, I will either clean up the language or not send out 
that those particular parts maybe and um, share that you know with the authors. But then I also share what I shared with that actual reviewer and just kind of give a gentle kind of reminder of how I guess appropriate reviews should be handled. Um, so also I think something else to consider is um, trying to, I guess reviewers trying to cite themselves oftentimes. It doesn't happen a lot, but sometimes we find that there's an excessive number of you should you should have used these citations. And and some sometimes it's valid, but sometimes it's not. So those are some other things we come across. I think uh, I think Heather just hit my number one pet peeve of reviewers is and and perhaps it happens in APAC often because it's such a narrow group of people. But the like, you know, cite Justin Hagel, cite Justin Hagel, cite Justin Hagel, cite Justin Hagel thing is it's it, there's ethical and moral dilemmas here that have to be teased out when we start telling people to only cite our own work or cite people within our our group. Um, I think another thing that that we're not accepting anymore, and perhaps this is stylistic, but when people download the PDF and they just use comments on the PDF, we're not accepting those reviews because we believe that that doesn't demonstrate that people have taken the time to read the paper and have constructive and and um, pointed thoughts about the paper. Rather, it seems more like somebody's, you know, the advisor of a student or something of that nature. So. That's something that we're pushing back on with reviewers at this point. I know that reviewers are taxed and this is a faster way to do a review, but it also seems like a less thoughtful way to do a review. Great, thank you. Ken? Hey, Risto, uh, just to pick up on something I think Jamie said, that yeah, we would want a clear indication from the reviewer on their recommendation for whether the paper should be published, major revisions, so on and so forth. Um, We'd want, of course, a clear indication to ourselves as the editors. We're a bit, we're a bit ambivalent about whether they indicate to the author what they think ought to happen with the paper. But we do find that very often, um, or not very often, occasionally, reviewers can be equivocal. They're not as clear cut with the submission with the author as they are with the editors. So we want that clear indication, and we want it to to match, to marry what's being said in effect whether implicitly or explicitly. The other thing I'd add is that we want a clear indication on the, on the submission's contribution to knowledge. I think it's something somebody said earlier on, clear indication of whether they think this takes the field forward, adds something, rather than it's more of the same. Thanks, Ken. Um, and I guess one of the other things um, that I've seen is copy and pasting the exact review and copying and pasting it to the notes on the editor they should be should be different i don't know if you agree or not but i feel like as a as an associate editor sometimes i get the full long review and then where it says notes to the associate editor editor it's just copied and pasted uh on there which doesn't necessarily add um add any insight so there's no like private comments it's just copy and pasted um i don't know how do you do you have a comment on that if I can just interject, but that's that's part of the issue. I was raising there, Risto, that, that there is a danger when that happens, that there's a mixed message being sent to the authors and the editor. So for I, I think by and large, our preference is for the two to match with just a clear indication to the editors about what they think the, the, the think the outcome should be. 
I wouldn't want too much of a mismatch because I wouldn't want a, 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 a an equivocal message, as it were, being sent to the reviewers or even to us as editors. But that's just our take on things. Thanks, Ken. Justin, you're you're shaking your head. You you agree on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think we we have instances where the reviewer will say very little and perhaps even sound really positive about a paper, but then in the private notes, the reviewer will say like, this is trash, it needs to be rejected. And you know, the, the difference in language is fascinating, um, especially I think when, when you know the people who are reviewing and such, but um, I think that, that makes it more challenging on our end, on the editor's end, really the associate editor's end than anybody else, because then we have these mixed ideas. And then if you do send a rejection letter, which I'm sure each of us have done, have this happen before, then the reviewer or the authors come back and say, oh, your reviewers are really positive about this. I'm receiving mixed messages. Why was this rejected? And so on and so forth. So um, the reviewers can do us a lot of favors by being consistent with the message they're sending to the editor and to the authors, as Ken had said. I basically am just saying what Ken says with an American accent afterwards. Thanks, Justin. Um, Go ahead, David. Give us uh, still, Aaron's another. just made a, Aaron's just asked a, 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 an, an interesting question, important question in the chat. What happens when you get opposite things being said by, say, two reviewers? Um, and my response to him in the chat is that I think that that's actually the editor, editor's job is to interpret the reviews and to give some guidance to the authors. And, and you've been asking about what makes a good review. You might also ask the question, what makes a good editor and a good editorial work? And the author should feel that they've got a fairly clear idea of what they need to do to get the paper to a standard that's ready for publication. Um, Sometimes I get lazy myself and I do see some of my associate editors do the same. And we've got templates and they don't change anything in the template and there's no substantive information that refers to the reviews. And there's sometimes that, that so much needs to be done in a major revision, okay, fine. Um, we do ask that everybody attends to what the reviewers have said. And, and, and as we were saying earlier, we put this into a table and we, we get the responses one by one. But I do think a good editor will help um, authors, and authors should look for that. Um, I would actually encourage everybody who's here who submits to journals to challenge editors. If you get a review back, if you get an ed, if you get a re reviews back with a bland comment from the editors that doesn't help you, and you've got contrasting advice, come back to the editor and say, "Could you give me some guidance on this?" Because actually, that's what we're there for. Can I just add one thing to the reviewers' comments? I agree with um, everyone else who's made comments. Um, and going back to, you know, sometimes I'll literally have someone provide two sentences of feedback that isn't constructive, and then they provide a major revision decision. Um, and so it's like, what do you want them to revise? Um, and so, again, going back to being constructive, um, but I think also... Um, for, for those of us, and I'm not sure which each, each system looks like, um, but within our system, we're able to actually rate reviewers. And I think that that's something, again, that is not always done on a consistent manner, but I think it's important um, as a sort of historical record to, um, to rate sort of the reviews that are coming in. And it feels, I think, sometimes for me, as someone who does a lot of reviewing for other journals, I sometimes feel um, 
like, oh, I shouldn't do this. This person is, you know, volunteering their time and you want to be kind and things. But, um, you know, I've consistently had a few reviewers that um, we've used over and over again who um, do not provide very constructive um, or detailed feedback. And I think that, again, from the standpoint of looking at the, the peer review process, um, and trying to make sure that it's timely and folks get their manuscripts back in a timely manner. Um, all of those things are important from the quality of reviewers. And I think too, the other piece for those of you that are reviewing, um, we all know, um, at least I do this, so I'm outing myself to the rest of the editors here. Um, if I'm reviewing for one of your journals, a lot of times I put it on my to-do list for like the last week before it's due. Um, ashamed, I know. And, um, but I think a lot of times people do this and then they rush the review. I would prefer as an editor that someone reaches out to me and says, you know, I'm behind on this review. Can I have a slight extension so that they can actually put more time and effort into it? versus um, submitting something because they're rushed and feel like they don't have the time. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, let me go to David because your virtual hand went up or your physical hand went up before Heather's virtual hand. And just very, very quickly to build on what Jamie just said, um, PESP, we, I don't know if you know this, but we actually have a reviewer of the year award um, <clears throat> as well as a paper of the year award. Um, and that's to recognize the, the good work that, that reviewers do. And we use the rating system um, as one of the things, uh, pieces of information we feed into that process. Really important, to, I think, to do that. Thanks, Heather. I think I'm up next. I see Jamie put in her, in the chat that they also do that now. Journal of Teaching and Physical Education has that as well. So hopefully people feel um, a little bit of kickback or good positive things for doing reviews for us. Um, I was just going to say that uh, our journal and maybe others are doing this as well. We're, we're trying to work with our associate editors to have kind of a reviewer recruiting process. So we're encouraging some, <clears throat> A, we have a, a link where interested reviewers can input their information just so we have it, but also kind of a junior reviewer system where we're asking some of the more senior reviewers to bring on board a maybe a doctoral candidate with them to review at the same time and just to get them going through the process so that they're ready to do this. So maybe this would um, will help us to generate more reviewers out there. Um, and then I know there are some articles, at least we have some in our journal, I'm guessing um, the other journals do as well, on what is a quality review. And so we're thinking about um, putting like a video maybe on our website of some things that reviewers can potentially target. So just some ideas. Thanks, Heather. Um, so Haley uh, McCown has been diligently following the chat because I can't keep up with it. Um, so Haley, do you have any um, questions that people have asked that haven't been answered? And maybe we can pose those, pose those now. Yes, um, most of the questions have been touched on, but if anybody wants to add to them, that would be great. The first one that we've kind of skipped over is, do you consider publishing reviewers' names as good practice? So some of you have not uh, responded to that. What are your thoughts on that? Publishing reviewers' name in a list of reviewers at the end of the journal, for example. 
I guess um, I could go both ways, whether that's at the end as acknowledgement or as uh, I know, I think it's Frontiers uh, does like the reviewer says at the end of the review process, it says, I reviewed Ken's paper. And when you see that get accepted, you un like uncover the 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 people who have actually done the done the specific review. I don't think any of the uh, journals represented here do that. Do you feel like that's that should ours, be? Something I'll jump there? in here. Sorry, ours does not. I know I've reviewed for journals that ask if I want to be recognized or something to that effect, or at the end of the journal, maybe. Um, I probably would not be in favor of doing it per article, just based on depending on what the reviewer comments were and and how things went back and forth. But maybe each issue. If people, we often get people who need a certificate that they reviewed, um, and I think that's for them to go up for promotion and tenure. Um, so some universities maybe require that, but um, I mean, that's a quality question. I will move on to the next one for the sake of time. Um, Tom Templin asked, and some responded already, but if any of you have a different answer, the question was, what are, what are your sanctions if an author or authors engage in academic misconduct? What is the process? A lot of you responded and said it's sent to your publisher and they have a team for it. Does anybody have anything besides that process or details to add? I, th I think that going to the publisher is really obviously best practice as far as what's in place. But I think it's also important from the standpoint of how small our field is and thinking about supporting each other as scholars and different things um, coming from the publisher. Um, I think that that's much more appropriate um, than coming from one of us as an editor, um, as far as, you know, sanctions and those types of things go. Um, so I think that that would just be my response is going through the publisher um, is the best case or the best course of action. Let's go, David, and then Hans. Um, back pre-social media days, um, no one would really know about these issues, uh, except for the person, the people involved, directly involved. Um, and it might have been possible for editors to, in relatively minor cases of misbehaviour, to deal with them directly. But nowadays, we had a recent incident with PESP and if you use Twitter or whatever, I don't, um, it was all over uh, social media, apparently, um, which made it impossible for us uh, for exactly the reason that Jamie's just said, you know, we're a relatively small field. We need to maintain collegiality. Um, I just had to stay completely out of the process and was very grateful that Routledge, Taylor and Francis have got a fantastic team to deal with these sorts of things. Uh, in answer to Tom's, uh, no, not my business. Hans? Sorry. Uh, in response, um, no, I'm not. I don't think so. You good? Um, anyway, um, in response to Tom's question, I privately uh, message him. Um, and it, it seems to me that, assuming that the, the authors actually read the submission guidelines for the journal, 
perhaps the editors can work with the uh, the journals uh, powers that be and and create a policy with regard to misconduct and and explicitly state that as part of the submission guidelines so the authors are forewarned and um, it's something that that brings it out in the open uh, and so we can be upfront about it and say look if, if Chad or Haley uh, opts to uh, use somebody else's um, um, words, wording, uh, or more more severe, uh, you know, duplicate same data and, uh, and use different data analysis for the same data set or something that's that's unethical, then they're forewarned. So be upfront about it. Let them know. Chad. Thanks, thanks, panelists. This has been really good. I'm just wondering if there's conversations, or not sure how to ask this, but a ways to expedite sort of the scholarly conversation. I look at journals in in sort of broader kinesiology fields, like British Journal of Sports Medicine, that has a variety of different article formats that facilitate sort of rapid conversation. For example, they have an editorial option. They have a discussions option about like sort of hot topics. They have a service spotlight that allows. Uh, a brief article about uh, impactful service opportunities. Um, I know JTB has sort of a research node and IJKHE has uh, some alternative formats, but you know, with COVID, with ChatGPT, there haven't been really outlets to, to have sort of an expedited scholarly conversation. We have JoeBird where we can submit editorials, but the conversation's a little bit different. So I'm wondering if there's conversations or efforts to sort of diversify uh, sort of article formats to, to facilitate maybe more rapid scholarly debate and conversation. Okay, can I come back to Chad on this one? And um, I think it's a brilliant idea. Um, years ago, many years ago, there was an Australian curriculum journal called Curriculum Perspectives that every issue had a point-counterpoint um, item uh, building on previously published material. Um, now, that wasn't rapid response. It had to wait for the next issue to come through. Um, but, but the only thing I'd say to you about this is the workload involved is, is huge. And we struggle with that as it is. You know, just the sheer volume of material, which one side is a good thing, but, but it's just the sheer volume of material we receive. Um, and, and that would be the killer for me. To, to add to this, I think, and I think it's a good question, Chad. And I think that largely um, we'll, what we'll get with Quest is we'll get a lot of people submitting things that are like three to five pages or for the viewpoint section of APAC, we'll get shorter notes um, that people are submitting with hopes that this can go through faster. But for, for me, and, and perhaps this is my biases coming through, and I think we all have biases that are going to come through, um, the journal should be a place where the peer review process is occurring. And so that peer review process is still going to take time, regardless of the format or the length of the paper. Um, I think there are a lot of different forums that people share information really quickly, like Twitter. Um, and I think once we start taking our academic journals and we make that an un, uh, unfiltered avenue or an unreviewed avenue, then we're basically taking on the same form as things like social media. Um, and then for me, that's a bit of a slippery slope. Uh, perhaps that's 
um, and an old school mentality toward the publication process. But but I I I fear that there's a lot of people thinking they're getting up to date good information from things like Twitter or other social media platforms, um, but that information largely doesn't have any rigor or or um, conceptual guidance. It's just people's quick opinions. And so I think that for us to move toward a more rapid conversation, we also need to figure out how to um, ensure that there's still rigor and quality control. Good word, Heather, quality control. I think that's uh, that's probably the thing that would be on my mind the most. Ted, you want to follow up? Me? No, sorry. Chad had his like little piece. Okay, sign. sorry. I was like, I'm like typing and I'm up. trying to. I want to talk again. Yeah, no, I don't. I, I'm not trying to hijack the conversation. Yeah, I, I think the the challenge obviously is the workload and sort of maintaining rigor. Um, I guess it's just sort of with such recent and monumental shifts in sort of the way we you know, operate or, you know, the potential impact some of this stuff has. I mean, we're still getting COVID articles now. It would have been helpful during that time to sort of, um, to see that. So, yeah, I understand the balance sort of with maintaining rigor, but if BJSM with the 20 impact factor could figure out a way, maybe we as physical educators could, you know, uh, think of a way that's sort of humane to reviewers and editorials while also maintaining sort of a robust scholarly debate and conversation. Thanks, Chad. So let me uh, let me jump in, Jamie. Hold on one second. Um, I'm, I want to get one more question in. Um, Menno asked this. Um, so just as a as a caveat here, the Australian based journals or uh, editors who are in Australia are sleeping right now. It's like 2 a.m. there. So that's why they're not represented on this panel. Um, but Menno, Menno said, all major PE journals are very much Britain, American-based. Are there any insights into the origin countries of submissions for these journals? I think the bar to publish in one of the major PE journals as a non-native English-speaking scholar can be quite high. It might lead to a publication bias, perhaps something to consider. Um, so uh, David had commented on there, fair point. That said, we have a lot of non-native English-speaking authors in PESP. Um, anybody else want to uh, jump on that topic? Well, could I just back back that statement up, um, you know, to say that <clears throat> we recently had this conversation with some German colleagues uh, who made a claim that um, non-native English speakers were, were actually being uh, were actually missing out. Um, and and Mikael Quenerstedt, a Swede, uh, went away and did some. Uh, sums statistics and came back and showed that we have got a majority, a small majority of non-native speakers publishing in PESP over the last, say, six years or so. Um, but I totally agree with you. Um, I can read French, but I would never attempt to write a, a scholarly article in French. It would be, be the most difficult thing I could imagine trying to do. So I've got enormous um, admiration for non-native speakers who, who, who write and publish in English. This was actually the question that I wanted to address. Obviously, um, we have international in the title of our journal, International Kines uh, Journal of Kinesiology and Higher Education. And um, I'm excited to see a lot of um, international scholars on the call. And I think that that's something, again, that we encourage um, submissions from the international community. And oftentimes that might mean um, English um, as, you know, English language learners or English as a second language folks submitting. 
Um, two things on that. I think as a journal, um, our policy is to always sort of work with folks um, to as long as the the actual study and the concept of the paper is very good to work with folks in that way. But I would also caution reviewers. I don't know how many times I've had to delete a sentence that will say, this is clearly written by someone that English isn't their first language. And that is so inappropriate to write in a review. Um, keep that stuff out of the review, be constructive. Um, you know, if you want to make that comment confidentially to the, to the editor, um, but it's not necessary. Um, let's just help lift each other up and, and work with folks as long as the actual study itself um, is sound. Um, then I think all of those other pieces can be um, managed through the review and editing process. Thanks, Jamie. Ken? Yeah, thanks. I imagine all editors on this call have to report to an association um, that they're joined with and all their publishers. And so the journals themselves, as well as the publishers, have a vested interest, don't they, in publishing as internationally as they can. And so each year we report on how many articles we've had from different parts of, uh, of the globe. Um, and in that regard, we the editorial team looks to support. So if we get those kind of comments that this isn't written, clearly isn't written by somebody whose native tongue is English, then the editorial team makes a commitment to help the authors with their English. And so that's one of the most time consuming uh, aspects of a current editor's job in order to elicit publications from non-native speaking English uh, authors uh, that is helping them with their, with their written English. So I'd imagine everybody does that. I would imagine everybody does that. So any other uh, final points? I noticed we have a, a couple minutes here. So if you have any final kind of like takeaways, um, love to share them and then we'll turn off the recording and we can have more uh, an informal conversation that's not recorded. But any other final takeaways from any of the panelists today? Um, this is Heather again from Journal of Teaching and Physical Education. Um, I just encourage anybody again who's a senior or someone who's further along in their career to cultivate and encourage incoming people to review because not only is it great for your service, but it really helps me to continue to review other papers just to get ideas for research projects of my own as well. So um, I think it's a great way to give back, to get uh, acclimated to more people and network as well. So um, I know some of the questions were about, somebody um, put in the, asked about getting interested reviewers. I'm sure any of us as editorial board members, associate editors, et cetera, are happy to assist new reviewers, give advice, give samples, um, help through the process, because uh, we need each other uh, in order to make this, you know, research continue to be disseminated. David, go ahead. Um, just maybe if I could say um, that for, for those of you um, here who are younger than me, which is just about everybody, um, you know, taking an historical perspective, uh, PESP started in, in, in 2004. GTPEs are, I think, maybe along with Quest and Research Quarter, the oldest journals. What, what we've actually seen, though, is a massive expansion in uh, publications in our respective fields represented by the journals here. Um, PESP started with two issues a year. We're now up to six. 
Sport Education Society, who aren't represented here, which is a shame. They just changed editors. Um, I, I think are on 10 issues um, a year. That's phenomenal in terms of the, the, the amount and quality of material that is actually being produced by a research community. And, and people often say to me, you know, they use impact factors to, to rank journals and, and, and the, the, the publishers are very, you know, looking very closely at who's leading and so on and so forth. For me, that's that's just nonsense. The fact that we've got five, six, seven, eight strong journals that are well supported by a research community is really important. And it gives you choices in terms of where you send your material as well. Thanks, David. So um, we're gonna wrap this up here. Um, again, feel free to stay for the next 15 minutes uh, to carry on the conversation. But I wanted to also highlight, um, we do have our ARA annual meeting in Chicago this year. Uh, it's April 13th to uh, the 16th. In 2024, we're in Philadelphia in mid-April, and then 2025 in Denver, Colorado, again, uh, late April. And all um, all of the submissions are due for abstracts. They're 2,000 word abstracts. They have a structure to them um, and they are due uh, typically mid-July. So um, thank you first and foremost to the panelists for, uh, for giving your time and uh, answering all the questions that we have. Um, and thank you to everybody else who joined in. So Aaron, we can stop.